Do not think about white bears. This is what researcher Daniel Wenger asked participants in his study. He gathered the group and asked them to not think about white bears. But here's the thing. Once he put the idea of white bears in the participants' heads, they couldn't not think about them. All of the participants reported seeing a white bear in their mind, despite being told not to. Whether it's your tax return, your ex, or a white bear, if you want to stop thinking about something, you'll often not be able to. And if I tell you not to think about white bears, you can't help but imagine one. Today, my guest, best-selling author Richard Chotton, will explain why telling someone not to do something can make them more likely to do it. All of that coming up in today's episode of Nudge. Oh, and if this doesn't sound interesting, then please do feel free to ignore this episode. Success Story, hosted by Scott D. Clary, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Success Story features Q&A sessions with successful business leaders, keynote presentations, and conversations on sales, marketing, business, startups, and entrepreneurship. Back in December last year, Scott did an episode with marketing legend Seth Godin on how to hire well, which I think is well worth tuning into. So listen to Success Story wherever you get your podcasts. Now, getting you to imagine a white bear is hardly an impressive feat. Most of us need to convince people to change their behaviour in far more dramatic ways. Whitney Wolf needed to convince people to try out her new dating app, Bumble when she first launched. Now, she had tried creating traditional ads, handing out flyers at university, and even hosting dating parties. None of this seemed to work. But then she stumbled upon a tactic that most people would dismiss. Rather than imploring people to download her app, she encouraged them not to. She put up official-looking signs outside lecture theatres on university campuses. These signs forbade people from using Facebook, Twitter, Tinder, and Bumble inside. So she was literally putting up signs that said, you are not allowed to use Facebook, Twitter, Tinder, and Bumble. Weirdly, by telling people not to use her app, she did two things. Firstly, she elevated her tiny brand to the scale of her rivals. But she also avoided something called reactants. By not telling people to directly download her app, she actually convinced more people to do it. As I said, this is due to this phenomenon known as reactants. Here's best-selling author and founder of the behavioural science consultancy Astro10 to explain more. There's a fascinating set of ideas from marketing around an idea called reactants, um, where I think it was Jack Brem who came up with the idea. He essentially argued that if people feel their freedom to choose is restricted, it can lead to a backfire effect. So one of the most interesting studies was from uh, Pennybacker. It's a 1976 study uh, where he finds a university toilet, men's toilet, I think, and he puts up signs trying to ask people not to graffiti. Sometimes the signs are polite, please don't graffiti. Other times he switches those polite signs for more authoritarian ones. Do not graffiti, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, big, bold, underlined letters. And what he finds is that there is far more graffiti. I think it's the order of twofold. There's twice as much graffiti when the authoritarian sign runs versus the polite sign. He references 
reactants and says that when people feel their sense of control and agency is restricted, they push back against that and they do the very thing that you don't want them to do. Telling people, do not graffiti on the walls, actually increased graffiti by two times. As Richard says, if we feel our autonomy and freedom is threatened, we react. We only feel a desire to do something if it matches with our own self-interests and if we feel in control. So this is of interest, I think, especially to government advertising. Think about all those signs you see in your local park. You know, stop stop graffitiing or stop letting your dog litter, you know, pointing finger and giant eyes. the, the, The problem with those is you feel like you're being told you're a criminal. You know, they feel like rude and aggressive. The danger is sometimes, uh, and it's especially those dog fouling adverts, they make you um, feel like you're being accused of something. They're, uh, they're the evidence from Pennebach and from Brem suggests they might well backfire. This tactic isn't just used by government behavioural ads, it's used in political ads as well. In fact, it's harnessed by one of the greatest ever American political ads, When John F. Kennedy was running for the 1960 presidency, he wanted to draw attention to Richard Nixon's untrustworthy reputation. Cleverly, he avoided directly stating his opponent was dishonest, as that might have stimulated reactants among voters who were already drawn to Nixon. Instead, Kennedy's team created posters which had a grinning portrait of Nixon overlaid with the lines, Would you buy a used car from this man? There's a link to that ad in the show notes. And just like the Bumble ad, this political campaign avoids reactants. Rather than making a direct request, it forces the viewer to think about their own self-interests. For Kennedy, it got people to decide if Nixon was trustworthy. And for Bumble, it got people to figure out if this new dating app was really as good as Tinder. However, I'm still not sure if that's why Bumble's signs worked so well. Why did it increase downloads by telling students not to download it? Well, Richard helped explain by sharing this fascinating study. Uh, Commercially, I think you can still apply these ideas if you are, for example, trying to get people to sign up for a subscription. What this might suggest is that a more softly softly approach might work. Maybe you want to emphasise that people are free to uh, stop the subscription at any time. Now, the reason I use that specific language, but you are free, is there is a a series of studies by a French psychologist, I think it's pronounced Gagain, uh, where he tested this idea of emphasising people's freedom. So he goes up to people on the street and asks them for spare change so he can get a bus. Sometimes he says, please can I have some coins so I can get the bus? Other times he says, please can I have some coins so I can get the bus, but you are free to accept or refuse. What he finds is that there is a huge swing in compliance. In the basic ask, 10% of people give money. In the but you are free ask, 48% of people give money. So you've got this almost five-fold swing in compliance. He argues this is an interesting finding because everyone always has the freedom to say no. But what he does with his specific language is emphasise and remind people of that freedom. And by doing that, as a requester, you increase this proportion of of, of compliance. Now, that is a huge swing in behaviour. And in the Gagain study, it's a slightly bizarre setting. So people might wonder about the validity of that finding. But 
Carpenter ran a meta-analysis where he looked at 42 different studies and found, even though the effects weren't normally as extreme as Gagain's, but he found that the but-you-are-free principle is a repeated and robust finding. If you emphasise people's freedom to say no, they are more likely, perversely, to say yes. So I think especially government advertising, maybe in that area of commercial and subscriptions, but maybe especially one-to-one negotiations, it's a brilliant technique to know about if you want to increase the chance of people saying yes. Now, I should add a few points of clarification here. Firstly, the amount of reactance a customer will feel depends on how loyal they are. This was shown brilliantly in a 2017 study by Gavan Fitzsimons from Duke University. He asked 162 participants to name a clothing brand. Sometimes he asked people to choose a brand that they had used for a long time and felt a degree of loyalty towards. And then on other occasions, he asked participants to think of a brand that they had only used briefly and felt minimal loyalty towards. He defined the first group as having a loyal relationship and the second group as having an unloyal relationship. He then showed the participants one of two ads with the brand's name embedded in it. Some saw what Fitzsimons termed as a non-assertive ad, which had a message saying Winter Collection 2012. Others saw an assertive ad, which had an additional demand saying buy now. Finally, he asked participants to indicate whether the ad was likeable or not likeable. Fitzsimons found that loyal shoppers liked the assertive ad 20% less than the non-assertive ad. In contrast, there was no significant differences in preference among the unloyal consumers. So in other words, more loyalty means a higher likelihood of reactance. Telling loyal Tinder users to download Bumble will definitely backfire. But using a reactance avoidance message, like Bumble did, is just far more likely to work. Now I've mentioned control a few times here and you might be wondering what I mean. Why do consumers need to feel a degree of control? Why does control reduce reactance? Well, in 2014, a study by Lamberton, Deneve and Norton from Harvard University showcases why control is so important to customers. They asked 182 students to rate their enjoyment of 12 pictures on a nine-point scale. The psychologists told participants that they would be paid $10 for their time but that they would have to return $3 of their reward as lab tax. They were instructed to put the fee in an envelope and hand it to the experimenter once they had finished their task. Now, this sort of odd way of collecting the tax was designed to allow participants to easily cheat and keep some of the cash. And many did choose to cheat. In fact, 45% left the envelope empty, so stole all of the tax, and 3% left only a partial amount. If you've listened to the episode on Elizabeth Holmes on Nudge, you probably won't be surprised to hear that almost half participants cheat and steal the tax. However, psychologists repeated the experiment with a slight twist. The second group of participants were told that they could advise the lab manager on how the tax was used. For example, they could suggest that the funds were used to buy drinks and snacks for future participants. Now, even though the group's suggestions were merely advisory, there was a sizable impact on compliance. And in this scenario, 68% of participants left the full amount of tax money in the envelope. That's an increase of 30% on the original group. As Richards says in his book, giving people a choice will increase their willingness to comply. So telling people not to download Bumble can increase downloads. 
telling people to ignore this episode of Nudge should increase listenership. And asking voters if they'd buy a used car from Nixon did boost votes for Kennedy. We all want to feel in control. And if that feeling of control is at risk, reactance kicks in and we do the opposite behaviour to that asked. Now, Richard has shared plenty of examples from the lab, plenty of examples from university students, but I was starting to feel a little bit of reactance. I was thinking, don't you have any real world evidence? But just before my reactance brain caused me to get grumpy, Richard gave a brilliant example of a tiny litter campaign that avoided reactance to create one of the world's most well-known slogans. All of that coming up after the break. As many of you know, I have just quit my job to go full-time on Nudge. But prior to that, I spent my career working in startups. And startups aren't easy. It's long hours, small teams, tiny budgets. It makes marketing hard work. But it doesn't have to be. HubSpot for startups can help grow your business without growing your stress. Their all-in-one platform connects your sales, marketing and support all together. So you can increase your leads, you can fast-track your deals, smooth out support and join a platform that more than 190,000 top brands trust. HubSpot also offer discounts for startups on their top-rated customer platform and not the type of discounts that barely make a dent. So if you're ready to boost your marketing without breaking the bank, look no further than HubSpot for startups. To see how much you can save, visit hubspot.com startups. Okay, back to the show. Now next up, I asked Richard about one of the most famous anti-littering campaigns of all time. This campaign was only successful because it avoided reactants. Many of you will know it. It's the Don't Mess With Texas campaign. No, I think it's, it shows how parochial we are as advertisers and marketers that in Britain we know about all the British case studies, but we often don't know about the very, very successful campaigns that have happened elsewhere. And one of the greatest ever anti-littering campaigns is Don't Mess With Texas. So what happened, 1980s, you've got the Department of Transport in Texas spending $20 million a year on picking up litter by the roadside. Every year they go out and they run these signs saying, keep Texas beautiful, and it has no effect on littering rates. They eventually pitch their advertising account, and I think it's Troy McClure, uh, and I've forgotten the name. T- of the Tim answer. McClure, I think. I've Tim McClure, that. excellent. Yeah, Troy, yeah, McClure. Yeah. Troy McClure, I think, might be in The Simpsons. So <laughs> shouldn't shouldn't mix the two up. Uh, yeah, okay, fantastic. Uh, so his idea is, like he says, basically, you've got to stop advertising to yourselves. You know, the panel of people who were in charge of the advertising were a group of you know, older people really interested in the environment. And he said, what your message is doing is essentially creating something that would be persuasive for people like you. The problem, he said, is that the people who are committing these crimes are not like you. In his slightly derogatory language, but it came quite famous, he said, they are bubbers in pickup trucks. Now, these are young men fueled with testosterone, a sense of machismo. They're into rule breaking, not rule following. So going out and saying, keep Texas beautiful doesn't motivate them. They're not interested in you know, ecological stewardship. What he suggested instead is that rather than trying to change the worldview of that audience, what you should do and get them interested in the environment, what you should do instead is reframe your message so it fitted with the worldview of the perpetrator. 
what he gets them to say is don't mess with Texas. Oh, you mean the litter? Yeah, you see the guy who threw this out the window. You tell him I got a message for him. Don't mess with Texas? That's the message. I got a message for him, too. What's that? Well, I kind of need to see him to deliver it. Don't mess with Texas. He makes it sound like littering is an affront that people from out of state commit. You know, it's people from Louisiana or Mississippi coming to Texas and, and taking the mickey. So it, it taps into their sense of state pride and machismo rather than tries to change their worldview. And it is a phenomenally successful ad. I think the, it's the order of a 70% reduction in littering. And it's probably the most successful anti-littering campaign ever. And I like it because I think it's a wonderful example of maybe a humility amongst marketers, recognising that it's very, very hard to change people's inner beliefs. So why not change what you're asking to do to fit with their existing beliefs? And it's become such a big part of American culture now that that phrase, don't mess with Texas, is on bumper stickers. It was in George Bush's, um, I think, presidential commencement speech. To those who would malign our state for political gain, don't mess with Texas. Uh, it's even on a nuclear submarine somewhere uh, in the Pacific or the Atlantic, a submarine that says, you know, don't mess with Texas. Uh, it's something that's become a real uh, famous piece of, piece of language in the States. And it's something I think all of us can learn from. This campaign avoids reactants. Just like the graffiti study Richard shared right at the start of the episode, Texas reduced litter by 70% when they used a message that didn't limit the Texans' feeling of control. And this is especially important in contexts where there's a power imbalance. Texan government officials have more power than Texas civilians, which means it's more likely that the Texan civilian could experience reactants. In fact, Penny Baker's bathroom study, which we shared right at the start, it tested this. Sometimes he attributed the command that forbidden graffiti to the chief of police, a high authority figure. But sometimes he attributed the command to the university grounds person, a low authority figure. Changing the status of the communicator significantly influenced the reactions of the passers-by. There was twice as much graffiti when the message came from the chief of police rather than the grounds person. That don't mess with Texas ad that I played during Richard's audio isn't delivered by the mayor or the chief of police. It's delivered by two cowboy players, Randy White and Ed Jones. The follow-up ads featured Texan film star Matthew McConaughey. More recent versions have even included Owen Wilson, Jennifer Love Hewitt and Chuck Norris point is you're sure to experience reactants when it comes from a position of high authority so you can avoid this with a low authority figure a much loved celeb someone who can't set laws and someone who can't tell you what to do but someone who you probably like this harps back to that bumble sign people assumed the sign was written by a high authority university official this made students even more likely to want to break the rules and download the app but not every application of this bias has to be so creative. Some applications are far simpler. Researcher Daniel Mocken of Tulane University studied how increase in choice can reduce reactants and increase sales. In 2013, he ran an experiment where people could purchase a DVD player. In some cases, they were shown just a Sony product. 
And then in other cases, they were shown a Sony product along with a Philips product. So two different groups seeing either one product or two products and then asked, will you buy one of these DVD players? He found that when the Sony DVD player was the only option presented, only 9% of the study participants said they would buy it. But when two options were presented, 32% of participants indicated that they would buy a product, nearly quadrupling the purchase intent. Offering only one choice, it limits our freedom. Offering two gives us the feeling of being in control. Similar experiments have been performed with university students who were asked about a piece of poetry that they would like to recite. Once the piece was picked, they were allowed to recite the piece they preferred, but half were told they must use that piece, while the other half were told they could change their minds and recite any piece they wanted. The students who were allowed to choose for themselves attended the classes more frequently and rated the classes higher in the end-of-term survey and even performed better in their recitations. Having a choice and being free to refuse avoided reaction and made students more committed to their class. The power of control goes far beyond DVD sales and poetry recitals, however. Some studies, cited in Stuart Sutherland's book Irrationality, state that a lack of control can have a life-ending effect. In a study of women who had abortions at Boston hospitals, it found that those who felt that they had been coerced into the abortion had far more psychiatric illness after it than those who felt that they had freely chosen to have it. In a British study of breast cancer in some women, researchers looked at procedures where women had been allowed to choose whether they had the lump removed compared to procedures where the decision was made for them. Those who were allowed to choose were less anxious and less distressed post-operation. And more dramatically, one study with 17 elderly women found that those who felt that they had been compelled to enter a nursing home for the old were more likely to die sooner. Out of the 17 who were compelled to enter the nursing home, all but one of the women died within 10 weeks, while only one of the 38 women who had felt that they had been able to freely choose to enter the home died within that time. According to the study, there was no difference in their state of health when they first entered the home. Reactance has a measurable impact on our behaviour. We seek to hold on to our freedom wherever possible and we don't like being told what to do. There's one final example that highlights this. It's the origin story behind the name of one of the UK's most infamous pub chains, Weatherspoons. Weatherspoons owns a large range of pubs and hotels all over the UK. It was founded in 1979 by Tim Martin. Weatherspoons now has 764 pubs, 16 hotels and over 20,000 employees with revenues totaling 1.7 billion. That, however, is not the interesting part. The interesting part is why it's called Weatherspoons. Well, Dave Trott reveals why in his latest book. When Tim Martin, the founder, was at school, he had a teacher called Weatherspoon, Mr. Weatherspoon. Apparently, that teacher told Tim Martin's parents that he would never amount to anything. Now, telling someone you will never amount to anything is a pretty surefire way to trigger reactants. And Tim Martin grew up wanting to prove Mr. Weatherspoon wrong. But he knew that just putting his own name, Martin, on his pubs will mean the teacher might not spot it. After all, Martin could be anybody's name. But he knew that no one can resist looking up their own name. So just to rub it in, he named the pubs after that teacher. Because Tim Martin wanted his teacher, Mr. Weatherspoon, to see his own name on pubs all over the country. 
and every time he passed his own name, he wanted to know that it was put there by a boy he said would never amount to anything. The third largest pub chain in the UK owes its name to reactants. This incredible bias that can reduce graffiti, win elections, and maybe, just maybe, encourage you to listen to this very podcast. That is all for today, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Now, at this point, I'd usually encourage you to sign up to listen to my newsletter by heading to nudgepodcast.com and hitting newsletter in the menu. But unfortunately, I've been informed by the culture secretary here in the UK that you're actually forbidden from signing up. It turns out the insights within my newsletter are so eye-opening that the government has decided to forbid any access. So please, please do not head to nudgepodcast.com and do not sign up to my newsletter. However, something you should do, but you are free to refuse, is pick up a copy of Richard Shotton's latest book, The Illusion of Choice. It is an absolute cracker and it inspired this whole episode. There is a link to that book in the show notes. Okay, that is all for today. Thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Phil Agnew, and you'll see me next Monday for another episode of Nudge. And remember... Don't mess with Texas.